Hello again, I'm Dr. Phil Rosenfeld, Professor of Ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute and course co-director of the Angiogenesis Exudation and Degeneration Annual Meeting, which was just held. As you know, New Retina Radio partnered with Dr. Kitchens to moderate discussions from speakers who presented at this year's event. This is the final episode covering the 2021 angiogenesis meeting. Check your feed for our other two episodes, which covered the future of therapy for geographic atrophy and wet age-related macular degeneration. In this episode, we strike at the heart of what makes the angiogenesis meeting so great, a focus on early phase studies that may guide our understanding of how we will care for our retinal patients in the future. Dr. Kitchen sits down with Drs. Nadia Wahid and Charlie Wyckoff, who share some phase one data with listeners. After the break, Dr. Kitchens moderates a discussion about how the future of our retinal practices involve innovative approaches for the treatment of retinal diseases as evidenced in the two talks from our panelists. I'm John Kitchens, and I'm joined today by Drs. Nadia Wahid and Charlie Wyckoff. Dr. Wahid is an associate professor at the Tufts University School of Medicine and is also the chief medical officer at Gyroscope Therapeutics. How are you, Nadia? Great, John. Great to be here. Thank you. And Charlie Wyckoff is with Retina Consultants of Texas and Retina Consultants of America. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. Great to be here with you, John. After we hear from each of you about your presentation at this year's angiogenesis meeting, I'd like to zoom out and consider what early phase research says about the future of retina. Not just what it says about future therapeutic options, but also what it says about the operational framework of our field. But before we get there, we have some data to discuss. Dr. Wahid, you shared the interim results of the FOCUS study. Tell us a bit about that. Um, so the focus was a phase one, two study, which evaluates the safety and dose response of GT005 for the uh, treatment of geographic atrophy. And GT005 is an AV2-based investigational gene therapy. It's administered subretinally, and it induces the production of complement factor I. So the big takeaways from my presentation were that GT005 has been well tolerated in humans at the three doses tested. Um, and that the administration of GD005 resulted in increased vitreous complement factor I levels and also statistically significant and sustained downstream reduction of markers of complement activation in the small cohort of patients tested in this early phase, phase one clinical trial. You know, Nadia, we've been hearing a lot about the complement system now and how complement inhibition could result in a therapeutic effect for some patients. But you said the levels of vitreous complement factor I increased following the dose of GT005? Yeah, so uh, that is correct. So within the complement system, we have one down regulator, uh, and that's complement factor I. Um, so you really want to increase the levels of complement factor I to down regulate uh, the rest of the complement factor amplification, especially the alternative pathway. And GT005 seeks to increase the expression of complement factor I um, in order to downregulate what may be overactivation of the alternative pathway. Okay, so complement factor I then is a good thing when it comes to AMD and may actually decrease some of the bad complement factors that we've heard about C3 and C5. Um, absolutely, and and the exciting piece is that we're using an investigational gene therapy to do that. 
Um, so we know that there are variants in multiple complement genes, including complement factor I, that are associated with the risk of developing AMD. And we know that most patients with um, advanced AMD are genetically predisposed to an overactive complement system. So if you increase the expression of complement factor I, which is the natural down regulator, we hypothesize that we can restore balance to an overactive, overactive complement system, reduce inflammation, and hopefully in the long term, um, slow down the progression of macular degeneration and thereby preserve sight. Nadia, fascinating biology, and you describe it beautifully. Tell us a little bit more about the FOCUS study itself. Um, so sure, FOCUS is a phase one to open label study that is dosed 22 patients as of December. As with all phase one studies, we aim to assess the safety and tolerability of the, of the therapy. We also wanted to understand if, um, and really to what degree complement factor I would be upregulated following dosing. So we measured increases in CFI levels and changes in pharmacodynamic markers in the vitreous samples of treated patients. Now there's seven cohorts planned in the study at angiogenesis. I presented the interim results from cohorts one to four. And of these cohorts, enrollment is complete in cohorts one to three and is ongoing um, currently in cohort four. Nadia, tell us a little bit about the safety. Um, so overall, the three doses of GT005 were well tolerated. There were no um, GT005 related serious adverse events noted. Um, what was interesting, we had one patient who was suspected to have a choroidal neovascularization at the six-month follow-up, uh, successfully treated with anti-VEGF therapy. Um, additionally, uh, keep in mind that the gene therapy is delivered via surgical approach, and there were 12 surgery-related adverse events, again, none of which were serious. Uh, and importantly, we also saw no signs of drug-related inflammation. So overall, um, a very reasonable safety profile. So this is interim data from an early phase trial. We really need to be cautious about efficacy results. But with that in mind, what did you find? Um, so um, great uh, question, John. So nine of the 10 patients treated with GT005 had increases in vitreous complement factor I levels with an average increase of 146% compared to baseline. Um, in fact, the first patient we treated showed sustained increases in complement factor I at 84 weeks out, um, which is the last sample that we have on that patient. Additionally, and very interestingly, what we noticed was that there was down regulation of the markers of alternative pathway amplification, including down regulation of the C3 breakdown products and of BA. Uh, these levels continued to decline up to the 48 week time point tested. Um, and what was also really interesting was that we saw statistically significant linear correlations between the increase in CFI levels and the decrease in BA levels. It's really fascinating, Nadia. What's on the horizon for GT005? Um, so John, as you know, um, the, the, these were interim results from the phase one to focus clinical trial. So that trial is continuing to enroll patients right now. But in addition, uh, the two phase two studies, Explore and Horizon, are also have also been initiated and are continuing to enroll. And these are really the studies um, that will answer the questions uh, about clinical efficacy. Um, so we hope to see, um, you know, so, so we hope to continue to enroll in these studies over the next year or so. Great stuff, Dr. Waheed. Let's move over to Dr. Wyckoff. His presentation was titled Inhibition of Complement C3 in Geographic Atrophy with NGM621 Phase 1 Study Results. Charlie, we'll get into the specifics of the drug in a second, but first let's hear an overview of the study's goals. Thanks, John. Absolutely. So this was a Phase 1 study looking at NGM621, which is an inhibitor of C3 cleavage. There are sort of two 
sort of key point in complement and the complement cascade, C3 cleavage and then C5 cleavage. And NGM621 is a monoclonal antibody targeting C3 that basically inhibits its cleavage. And the primary goal of this study was very simple, was to evaluate safety and tolerability of both single and multiple injections of this monoclonal antibody, NGM621. Um, and we also sought to explore the pharmacokinetics of NGM621 to guide the phase two study. So Charlie, what type of patients did you enroll in this study? Yeah, the enrollment criteria here were pretty standard for an early phase geographic atrophy study. Patients that had to be 50 years of age or older, they could not have um, a history or presence of CNV in either eye. They had to have geographic atrophy lesion size in the study eye of at least 2.5 millimeters squared. Um, and then they had to have vision of between 2080 to 2400. We were targeting sort of the, the worst side of vision here because we were not expecting to see benefit. This was really a safety and tolerability analysis. So Charlie, before we go further into the study design, let's hear about NGM621. Give it to me on the molecular level. Yeah, NGM621 itself is a 150 kilodalton humanized monoclonal IgG1 antibody with a modified FC domain. Um, this antibody has no pegulation and has a KD of about 340 picomolar, indicating high affinity for C, C3, given its ability to inhibit uh, C3 cleavage. So Charlie, we've heard a lot about complement um, C3, C5, uh, complement factor I. There's so many places to target the complement system in GA. If listeners want an in-depth discussion of the complement system, they can go back and, and listen to episode one of this miniseries and hear uh, about C3 and C5 from uh, Dr. Praveen Dugal and, and Dr. Voss Sada, and they discuss it. But Charlie, tell me, what are the benefits of targeting C3 as NGM621 does, and how does it differ from APL2? Yeah, great questions. The complement cascade is fascinating and incredibly complicated. I learn more about this cascade everything, every time I think about a new molecule, a new mechanism. We're still learning a lot about this cascade. But the truth is we don't know what the optimal point is to intervene. Maybe it's to upregulate complement factor I, upregulate complement factor H, or downregulate cleavage of C3 or C5 or CD59. There's so many elegant places to potentially intervene. And we are still learning what's going to be valuable for patients here. But specifically C3, C3 is the point of convergence of all three activation pathways. So it's sort of the first key location where everything that drives complement activation comes together. And then when C3 gets cleaved into C3A and C3B, that creates a downstream waterfall that ultimately leads to, to C5 cleavage and the MAC complex formation. So C3 is sort of the most upstream conserved central path of complement. And so the idea is that if you inhibit C3 cleavage, you can really shut down activation from any of the three pathways. And that's why it's a key point that's being investigated by multiple sponsors in this space. And you mentioned APL2 or, or PEGS attack plan, which has you know, strong phase two data and is, and is in a fully enrolled uh, phase three program uh, for which we should have data later in the year. And then this is a, a molecule early in the development cycle here. This is again, just phase one data, um, also looking at C3 inhibition. APL2 is a small icyclic molecule, again, with positive phase two data. And this is much earlier on, but a slightly larger molecule without pegylation in an antibody form. We know antibodies are 
are, are in general well tolerated inside the eye based on previous experiments, experiences with multiple other anti-VEGF agents, obviously. Um, and so this is just another molecule in the pathway and it may be, it may be differentiated here, but additional data is needed to, to determine that. Fantastic explanation, Charlie. So back to your study, give us a brief outline of the trial design for the listeners. Yeah, it's a pretty simple, straightforward, clean phase one study. There were three single ascending dose cohorts, five, 10, and a maximum dose of 15 milligrams. And that was followed by a multi-dose cohort of 15 milligrams dosed twice, one month apart. All patients were followed for 85 days of interest. All patients completed the phase one study. There were 15 patients total, you know, just a standard phase one study, limited in number of patients and limited in follow-up, very consistent with other phase one trials. On average, baseline vision was about 20 over 250, so poor visual acuity. Most of these were large, central involving GA lesions, which is what you would expect based on the enrollment criteria. Charlie, it's always interesting um, looking at the safety in phase one clinical trials. Uh, what did you find um, in this particular study? Yeah, thanks, Nadia. There were really no safety events um, that were of concern here, either systemically or locally in the eye related to study drug. In fact, there were no safety events attributed to study drug, just to say it clearly. There were no vision-related safety signals, no endophthalmitis cases, no in in inflammation cases, no cases of CNV development. But again, remember, this was just a 12-week um, final endpoint. And all of the ocular adverse events are representative of what you might expect following intravitreal injections, such as conjunctival hemorrhage. So Charlie, clearly, you know, this is a phase one study. The most important thing is, as you said, the safety. But I'm curious, what was reported as far as outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So we did look at all the standard outcomes. Um, we did not expect to see a change in visual acuity or GA lesion size. And in fact, we did not see a change in vision or GA lesion size. Patients again were followed for about 12 weeks total in this phase one study. Mean IOP was also stable. We saw transient increases in the IOP, just as you would expect from a from a fixed volume injection to the vitreous cavity, as we're well aware of for uh, over a decade at this point. And then, you know, the probably the most interesting um, uh, take-home point here from a data perspective is, is really looking at the preclinical model, modeling data, which suggests that NGM621 and a 15 milligram dose may have biological activity able to suppress complement cascade activation for up to seven or eight weeks, sort of supporting a two-month dosing interval uh, moving forward, in addition to a one-month dosing interval as we move into phase two. So that leads me perfectly into my next question. What's next for NGM621? Yeah, NGM621 is being evaluated in a, in a large, randomized, double-masked, robust phase two trial. The trial's name is Catalina. It's currently enrolling and patients are being randomized equally to NGM621 monthly, NGM621 every other month, or sham injections either monthly or every other month. And the primary outcome is both um, safety and efficacy at, at one year. Fantastic. Listen, I want to thank you both for sharing these really exciting um, and encouraging phase one data. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what this all could mean for our patients and our practices.
Welcome back to New Retina Radio's coverage of the Angiogenesis 2021 meeting. I'm John Kitchens here with doctors Nadia Wahid and Charlie Wyckoff, both of whom just shared early phase data that they presented at this year's Angiogenesis meeting. I'd like to use these two data sets as a jumping off point, so to speak, about the future of retina. Innovative and creative thinking is needed to push our field from the anti-VEGF era toward an era where more patients can receive the therapy for additional diseases like we talked about tonight with geographic atrophy and dry age-related macular degeneration. Nadia, I'd like to come to you first. And one of the things that I really love about Gyroscope um, is is their delivery of their gene therapy product. Can you describe how you're doing your drug delivery or your gene therapy delivery? Um, absolutely. So um, John, we have a surgical subretinal delivery um, and, and you know, it's, a, it's a one and done surgery. Um, so, so at the outset right now, the focus um, study has looked at subretinal delivery using a transvitreal route, which is your standard uh, going in and doing a vitrectomy, creating a retinotomy and delivering in the subretinal space. Um, however, what we also have is a subretinal delivery device, um, and that is getting investigated in cohorts five to seven of the focus study, uh, which is a minimally invasive device that, um, that basically travels along the suprachoidal space um, and, then, and then goes into the subretinal space without having to do a vitrectomy and without breaching the vitreous necessarily. So uh, the goal is to avoid some of those, um, some of those complications um, that you would get traditionally with a vitrectomy. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, the, one of the advantages of gene therapy is you deliver it. In this situation, you deliver it right to the cells that need it, which, which are the RPE cells and in the, um, you know, in the uh, subretinal sub space. Um, and then uh, the hope is that the gene therapy continues to produce uh, what you ask it to produce in this, in this situation, complement factor I. Um, and therefore you have a long lasting effect um, uh, because of uh, the because of the gene therapy delivery, and I think that becomes important, especially when we're addressing diseases like geographic atrophy, um, in which patients don't see an immediate improvement in their vision once you give them an injection. Very different from anti-VEGF, right? Where you do a couple of injections and patients come back and they're like, "I can see better." Uh, this is different. This is preventing decline of vision loss, um, and so I think uh, you know sustaining monthly or every other month injections in these patients in the absence of any visible benefit. Um, will be will be really hard to do, which is why I, I find you know the the subretinal gene therapy approach very um, attractive um, as a platform for delivery of of almost anything really. You know, Nadi, you hit on a great point, and one of the things that was really exciting about what you talked about was just the sustained levels of complement factor I elevation and gene therapy product after a single dose. Uh, we're familiar with this delivery device. People may have seen it presented at other meetings. I believe Janssen was one of the, you know, with their cell therapy, um, this supercoidal delivery approach, and, and it's been spun off into the company Orbit, I believe. And it's a very elegant way to deliver a, a gene product. Now, you all chose AAV2 as your viral vector. What, what was your thought process? Yeah, no. Uh, so one clarification, John. So even though the cannula travels along the suprachoidal space, the delivery with the orbit is true subretinal delivery. So you're actually delivering between um, the RPE and the and the retina, which is um, you know which is exactly where you would want the, this kind of gene therapy to land. Um, but one of the reasons for choosing AV2 
um, is because it's clinically predicated. We have very good data uh, on it out of the Nightstar and the Spark programs um, that have shown that you know it, it transduces RPE cells, it produces what it's supposed to produce, and also there's very good data on longevity of effect. So you have three-year data coming out from some of these programs still um, showing that the AV2 is is continuing to produce the proteins that it's meant to produce, uh, which you know which is one of the reasons that we started out uh, with AV2. Um, uh, because of that. Now, of course, keep in mind that, you know, uh, this, this is a first generation, right? So, so eventually um, there, there's a lot of exciting work being done on capsid technology, um, you know, not just by gyroscope, but by a lot of companies that are really focusing on capsids um, as well as um, on delivery, right? So I think the eventual goal uh, will be to have a capsid that's available for perhaps in clinic delivery. Um, you know, and I, and I think that eventually we, we will get there, but, but that's going to take, I think, uh, you know, many, many years more of development. And this is something that we know is, is clinic ready um, as far as, um, you know, as far as the vector, the AV2 vector is concerned. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice safe platform to use that's been clinically predicated and proved by the FDA before and other programs. Fantastic. Charlie, you gave us a great outline of the Complement Cascade and, and innovation of Complement Cascade by various different products that we've heard about at Angiogenesis and on this podcast. Do you think that there will be a role for multiple drugs inhibiting Complement, or do you think you just need to block it at one point or another and stop the entire cascade? I wish I had a great answer to that, John. It's a, it's a super important question, and I just want to see at this point one drug that's approved. <laughs> I mean, we've had so many strikeouts in this field for so long, right? You think of the lampalizumab hangover that we're all still living under. Sorry to use that analogy, but I think it's true. That was such a letdown for patients, first and foremost, but just for the whole field that I would take any drug approved at this point. You know, I'm very excited about the, the APL2 data. I think that was strong phase two data. Particularly excited about that in the face of the, of the, um, of the Zymura data from their phase 2B slash phase three trial. We have two complementary data sets that are showing a similar magnitude of benefit over one year. So very excited that we really are onto something for patients benefit. Um, but then you ask an important question, okay, if the C3 inhibition with APL2 works, are we done? And I think the clear answer from my perspective is no. I mean, we need to differentiate these molecules, these pathways, we need to understand, are they, are they, are they synergistic? Um, or are they, are they, are they going to be somehow not synergistic where one will be enough. And then you got to think outside of complement, right? We have HTRA1 inhibitors, totally separate pathway that are two of those in development, very exciting. And then other, other approaches, right? Uh, other approaches to treat GA also, ultimately regeneration of the lost cells. So I think there's a lot of work to be done here. The first step will be to slow the progression and then we can go earlier in the disease state and really, really begin to look more broadly at this disease state. But at this point, I would take anything in the clinic. Great point, Charlie. You know, one of the advantages you mentioned about NGM621 is the potential that it could be a two-month drug. How are we going to get patients to buy in to monthly or every other month injections indefinitely to treat something where they're not going to see an improvement in their vision? Yeah, super important question. And so two, two threads I take away from that. First of all, the anti-VEGF agents we have the perfect, you know, VEGF meter in the OCT that, were, that was developed at the same time. Such serendipity there. We don't have that. At least we don't think we do with GA, right? It's going to be treat fixed dosing indefinitely, at least with these, um, these, these first two molecules in, in phase three trials right now. 
and there's really no endpoints. Now, who knows? In the phase three data set, maybe we will be able to tease out certain phenotypes or maybe genotypes that can be dosed less frequently and continue to have benefit if we structure additional phase three B studies, for example, to study different dosing frequencies. So we, we might be able to individualize over time, but top line phase three data will not allow us to differentiate from monthly dosing versus every other month dosing. I mean, the good thing about the Apellus data set is, is that we are gonna have um, uh, different dosing frequencies. And so we'll see if they're equally effective. And of course, if they are, patients and physicians will choose to use the less frequent dosing, um, but we will see with data over time. And Nadia, from a visualization standpoint, are there gonna be any parameters or metrics that we're gonna be able to follow like we follow OCT for anti-VEGF? to kind of give us and our patients the feeling of some, some modicum of success in these treatments? So that's a great question. And, and, you know, it goes back to what Charlie was alluding to. The top line phase three data is really not going to answer those questions for us, but we just need to get a therapy in clinic at this point, right? Because these patients are going blind in front of our eyes. Um, but, you know, I think some of the work that's being done in imaging um, and that was presented at Angiogenesis was, as well as some of the work being done in machine learning and artificial intelligence, I thought was really, really interesting. Because I think at this point, we're really trying to parse out, um, you know, which are the patients who are fast progressors? Which one of these patients are the ones that, you know, are there any predictive biomarkers out there, such as the chorea capillaris or looking at, um, you know, uh, hyperflectic spots in the retina that may, um, you know, predict which patients are worse prognostically um, and therefore enable us to target these patients and, and follow them and actually show, um, show some effect. I thought so, one of some of the most interesting data presented actually out of the Apellus um, clinical trials was around um, nascent geographic atrophy and how they inhibit um, you know, the, the development and of nascent geographic atrophy, right? So, so I think we're certainly moving into the era of looking at some of these earlier biomarkers and being able to parse those out and to be able to show um, that we're having an effect. But a lot of work still, I think, needs to be done in that realm. And we really need to invest in, in understanding the disease um, and the disease process and progression better and, and going in sooner and earlier to really prevent vision loss. Nadia, for GT005, what's our timeline on that? When would we expect to have some uh, ability to have this in clinic? Um, so that's a great question. And, you know, as a clinician, um, you know, I think we really understand the urgency of getting therapies um, to these patients, which is, you know, one of the reasons that, um, you know, at GT within Gyroscope, we've actually started our phase two trials um, as so, in parallel to the phase one to still enrolling because we just wanted to get patients into this um, as soon as possible. So, um, you know, I, I think the phase two enrollment is ongoing and we should have some good answers. Um, and of course we're working as fast and as hard as possible to get these studies enrolled. Um, you know, so, so hopefully soon, <laughs> not too far out into the future. Fantastic. Charlie, same question for you on NGM621. When might we expect to be able to hear some phase three data and, and anticipate this coming to our clinics? It's a long term down the road. I mean, right now we're enrolling a phase two trial across the United States. And so, right, you think that that's a one year primary endpoint. You're looking, maybe we have data on the phase two in two years. And, and I, am, I am not involved on the sponsor side and when to move forward with phase three, but just my experience from other programs in the past is probably wait to see data from the phase two before initiating the phase three. So you're looking at multiple years down the track. I think that the next most exciting thing to me in GA is gonna be the Apellus 
phase three readout anticipated for potentially third quarter this year. Yeah, that is something that's really, really exciting and that is on the horizon. So speaking of other exciting things on the horizon, aside from your subject matter and what you talked about at Angiogenesis, Charlie, what were some exciting things that you heard at this really, I think, best Angiogenesis meeting ever? I agree. It, w- it was a fantastic um, uh, meeting. I love the all live format. That was, that, was, that was a bold move. I think it paid off your great dividends there. You know, I think to me, the most clinically relevant topic, um, I'm a little biased because I was involved with it, but it's the farisumab data. I, I really do think the farisumab is meaningful because we have positive phase three data on, on, a, on an additional mechanism of action, right? We lived in the anti-VEGF monotherapy world for so long. It's a great world for our patients to have been able to live in, but could it be a better world moving forward now that we can inhibit ANG2 and, and, and activate TI2 signaling? And I think the answer looks to be yes, based on the phase three data. But it's not a commercial product yet, but presumably the sponsor is gonna submit that to the regulatory agencies that I think they've said, publicly that they're planning to do that in the near future. And so hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll have a net, another toolbox, another tool in our toolbox for these, for these common extirpated retinal diseases. You know, it's the first time ever we've had, we've had two global phase three programs read out at the same time for the same molecule. So very exciting to see that move forward in both DME and AMD. And Nadia, same question for you. What, what were some of the things that you were fascinated by at, at angiogenesis? Um, so I think the answer for me is, is two big trends that I'm starting to notice. So one is, um, you know, as an imaging person, really seeing the imaging and the biomarker and the AI field take off um, and, and really starting to um, see us trending towards a way of designing smart trials instead of huge clinical trials that, that are very expensive and, and last forever. Uh, so smart and acceleration, and, and I, st- I have start. I think we've started seeing that in the um, in some of the imaging biomarkers um, that are getting parsed out, right? I think the other piece um, that I found really exciting was this um, this leaning in towards longevity of treatment, right? Because I think all of us know we've done you know these monthly or every other month injections in our you know diabetic patients and in our wet AMD patients, um, and there's only so much that you can do with that. Um, over the long term um, with chronic disease, right? And we've seen lots and lots and lots of data come out that show that compliance goes down over time. And therefore, um, you know, you start seeing the efficacy um, uh, declining over time and the outcomes get worse. Um, So this real leaning in to providing longer term therapeutics uh, from my perspective, whether that be gene therapy, whether that be the port delivery system, um, I thought all of those, um, you know, were really excited and exciting um, and exciting trends. And of course, seeing the progress driven forth in geographic atrophy. So looking at both the Apellus data and the Iveric data and seeing two completely independent data sets acting on the same pathway, but at different points in the same pathway and still pointing in the same direction with the same magnitude effect. For me, that was huge, right? Because just like you said, we're, we're suffering from the lampalizumab hangover. And I think this to some extent helps pull us out from there and, and really move forward in this field. Well summarized, Nadia. Uh, I, I got to agree. I think this was a fabulous meeting. There's never been a meeting where we've just had so much data presented. And, and honestly, I think next year we may see even more, which is just so exciting that our field is moving forward so quickly. Nadia, Charlie, I want to thank you both and congratulations on your really great presentations. 
That's it for this episode of New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2021 Angiogenesis meeting. Go back and listen to earlier episodes covering Angiogenesis 2021. Until next time, I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.